Okay, good morning everyone, we're back, we're back to the Parsha class, and this week is Parsha's Bahalosacha, the third Parsha in the book of Bamidbor. Many, many ideas in this Parsha, and it is quite a sad Parsha, one of the more um, sadder Parshas of the Torah, as we'll see a little bit of that today. Uh, but we're going to focus on one aspect of the Parsha. But before we do that, we'll say a little vignette. There was a great uh, uh, tzaddik called the Lechovitcher Tzaddik. And every Arab Shabbos, like a good chassid, he would go to the mikvah. However, on this particular, every year, the Friday before Parsha's Baloscha, when he would go to the mikvah, he'd go to the, the mikvah. So, no, oh, we didn't press it down. Now it's going. Okay. So uh, with this particular week when the Lechavature would go to the mikvah, he would go accompanied by musicians playing whatever, violin, whatever, drum, whatever, as it take, escorting him to the mikvah. He did this every year on this parsha, Parsha's Baloi Sucho. So finally one of the Hasidim had the courage to ask him, Rebbe, why are you doing this? So Rebbe said, well... There's a Pusik in this week's Parsha that gives me the biggest joy I could have. And they say, what is that verse? So I've got it written to you there on the first source. What is the Pusik? So the Lechavachur Tzaddik said, we know in this week's Parsha, Moshe, we will speak to his father-in-law Yisro, when he asks him to come along with the Jewish people as they're about to travel to Israel, he said the following words. He says, for Hashem has spoken of good for Israel. Hashem has spoken well of the Jewish people. That's what the Pasuk says. So he says, well, if Hashem is saying nice things to the Jewish people, you know what? That's a good reason to be happy. You know, when Hashem has nice things to say about Jews, that's a good reason to be happy. And that's why I want to have musicians playing, because it's a Shabbos where Hashem is saying how much he likes the Jewish people. All right? So that's why he did that. So we're going to try to say some good things about the Jewish people in this week's Parsha. Okay? That's, that's the, we have enough time then you know we'll get to the end of the class when we get to that part. Okay, let's begin. The beginning of the Parsha, Parsha's Baloscha, there's a commandment that Hashem tells Moshe to command Aaron to light the menorah. Every day, to light the menorah in the Mishkan. And the Torah then tells us, source number two, Aaron did so. He did it. Toward the face of the menorah, he kindled the lamps as Hashem has command, had commanded Moshe. Yeah, it seems simple enough. Comes along Rashi. Rashi adds a comment. And he says, this comes us to tell us the praise of Aaron, Shaloshina, that he did not change. He did not change. Uh, which means to say, the praises, he didn't change from what the orders were. The orders were light every day, and he didn't change. He did light them every day. Um, so the question is, the question is, wherein lies the greatness of Aaron by doing what he was told to do? He said, listen, every day you got to light the menorah. Fine. So every day he lit the menorah. The menorah says, oh, see, see how great he was? He did every day. He didn't change. So obviously, you know, if Moshe Rabbeinu would tell me and you to do something, I don't think we'd think of changing things. So why is this a praise? He's doing his job. So that's an important question. Um, but the main uh, 
bulk of what's going to happen starting now and through the rest of the book of Bamidbor. A theme that reoccurs over and over and very mind-boggling. Let's start at the end of the Parsha. At the end of the Parsha, Miriam meets Moshe's wife, Zipporah, on one fine day, and she sees that she's not putting on her makeup. She's not putting on her eyeliner, as she had been accustomed to doing. So she says, my dear sister-in-law, what happened to the makeup? So I don't put it on anymore. So why don't you put it on anymore? Well, ever since Moshe went up to that mountain, we have not been intimate anymore. So if we're not intimate anymore, I have no need to put on makeup and look pretty for him. To which uh, Miriam was surprised. He says, she doesn't understand. So what, what, what makes Avram a, a PC, a privileged character? Uh, you know, uh, he's, we're all prophets. Miriam was a prophet. Aaron was a prophet. God spoke to them. Hashem speaks to Moshe too. So Aaron and Miriam went to God and confronted God on this. And they said, you know, Moshe's not behaving properly. To which Hashem, uh, so that's what they have in source number three. That's source number three. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moshe regarding the Cushite woman who he had married. If he had married a Cushite woman, that's Sipporah. They said, was it only the Moshe that Hashem spoke? Did he not speak to all of us as well? And then Hashem exonerates Moshe. It's not inside, but Hashem says there's nobody like him at all. I call him at any time. He has to be ready at a, at a moment's notice. I could just go, Moshe. And he has to be ready to go. It wouldn't quite work if he was in the middle, uh, in bed with his wife. Qu- couldn't quite work. He has, he's always had a 24-7 call. There is not like everybody else. And as much as you'd like to think that you're like him, you really aren't. Okay, so what do we see? People misjudging. Moshe's sister is misjudging him. Let's move on. Earlier in the Parsha, source number four, it says the rabble that was among them cultivated a craving. And the children of Israel also wept once more and said, who will feed us meat? The Jews started complaining about the manna. They had manna every day. And I said, oh man, oh man, oh manna. What about that good meat? What are those rib steaks in Egypt? You know, why can't we have any meat? So you'd figure, who are the people complaining? Must have been these low lives, the, the, the not spiritual people. But the Medrash in source where it says the rabble was none other than the 70 elders of the Sanhedrin. The 70 leaders of the Jewish high court. And they're questioning Moshe. Why are we still eating manna? Why can't we have any meat? And we're beginning to see, and this is a pattern that continues throughout this book, that everyone is being critical of Moshe. Now, who is this Moshe? He's not just any old leader. He's not just the rabbi of a congregation. He's the man that God speaks to. He's the man who took the Jews out of Egypt. He was the only one who got up to the mountain. He's the one who gave us the Torah, and God's voice emanated through his throat to give the last eight commandments. And people are criticizing him. We'll find in a few weeks in Parshas Korach, we find that Korach and his gang were critical of Moshe and Aaron. They felt that, they felt that Moshe was doing things on his own, appointing his brother, doing all kinds of things that were not correct. And it says in source number five, and Moshe heard and fell on his face. When they were complaining, he just fell on his face. And source number six, the Talmud says, what report did he hear? What were they saying about him? Listen to this, guys. 
He heard that they suspected him of adultery. Each and every one of them suspected his wife concerning Moshe. All 250 people who took the side of Korach, they all suspected that Moshe had been adulterous with their wives. Okay? Can you imagine if there was CNN in those days? If there was uh, those rags, uh, the, the National Enquirer? What be going on over here? The New York Times? The Toronto Star? Let's say... Many rumors are abound. He's been forced to leave office because he cannot continue to lead because of all the, the, the rumors that are being spread about him, etc., etc., etc. All right? That's why, you know, when, when a rabbi is, is a little bit down and he's saying, you know, everybody's blaming him for things that don't happen. So you could always know one thing, as long as it, it, Moshe Rabbeinu had it worse. Because in all the years I've been blamed for a lot of things, but no one's blamed me for sleeping with somebody's wife yet. So I'm ahead of Moshe Rabbeinu on that score. Okay? I'm just saying, you know, if Moshe Rabbeinu, they said he was sleeping with their wives, what do you expect any other rabbi to do any better than Moshe? Not that. So that, that's part of That's the first lesson. You go to rabbi school, it's the first thing they teach you. So we're going to talk more about that. But, uh, you know, this just keeps going on and on and on. You know, so, so no, it's like he's damned if he does, if he's damned if he doesn't. On the one hand, he separates from his wife. His wife says he's, his sister says he's too religious. Well, he's not even with his wife. And then the other will say he's sleeping with every other woman. You know, it's, it's, it's not fair. So many stories um, and other events in this parsha that are laced with animosity and suspicion. For example, when the Levites were inducted into their work, part of the ceremony of inducting them was that all their hair was shaved off, totally, from top to bottom, totally shaved off. And the wife of Korach, who was a Levite, was very critical of that. When her husband came home without any hair on his whole body, says, look what Moshe is doing to you. You look like an abnormal person with your hair shirt off. He's He's trying to insult you. And indeed, this eggs Korach on to begin to start his revolution against Moshe. So this is really a bad trip for Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu begins in this parsha one after his sister, the leaders, the elders, Korach, this, that. Everybody's got something to say about Moshe Rabbeinu throughout the entire book of Bamidbar. So we have to analyze this. We have to understand what's the nature of this. It's not just a phenomenon we just say. We have to understand how this is and why this is. And to this we turn to the teachings of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, in his Sefer Likute Maran, the second volume, the 52nd teaching, which we've given you a significant piece of to follow along. Okay? And Rav Nachman, you know, was not impervious to this um, situation as well. He was certainly addressing the conditions in his life as well. This was when Hasidus was still relatively new. We're talking about the 1700s over here. Hasidus was relatively new. And there was a lot of um, suspicion against Hasidus. There was a lot of animosity towards Hasidus. People looked at it the wrong way. There was ferocious criticism. And he especially was the brunt of much of this criticism. I mean, he had other Orthodox Jews who would do terrible and nasty things to these Hasidish Rebbes. And Rabbi Nachman, unfortunately, received a lot of the brunt of that as well. So this is obviously a topic that was has been going on and was no less strong in the days of Rabbi Nachman. So let's see what Rabbi Nachman says. He says, The fact that there are people who ask many questions concerning the behavior of righteous people is something that must be. 
He's saying it's a necessary, I don't know if we're going to say evil, but it's a necessary thing that has to happen. This is part of the regular way that life goes. It's never going to change. There's not much you can do about it. And it is a reality that will exist. Why? Because the righteous resemble their creator. There's a concept of imitato dei, where a person is supposed to emulate God. Just like God is kind and merciful, you are kind and merciful. Just like he has compassion, you have compassion. And there's another one. Just as God is misunderstood, and his actions and his teachings arouse much controversy, so too to tzaddikim, who resemble God most profoundly, also will arouse questions, skepticism, and doubts. You know, on a very simple level, you know, uh, you know, you have it's it's coming up this this next couple of weeks, right? The big gay weekend, right? Every June is that month, right? Right. So people look at, at, at if, if people if, if anyone believes there really is a God, they say God is a very cruel God. I can't understand a God who would who would in his Torah would write that. People, who males who have intimacy with each other, the Torah says they deserve to be stoned. That's what it says in the Torah. So either they say God never wrote it, but if they say God did write it, then you know what? That's not a God I'm interested in. A God that's so insensitive to alternative lifestyles is something that just doesn't make any sense, and therefore we throw out the religion. There's a lot of things that God does is involved in this world. There people have a lot of questions. They don't understand. Where was God in the Holocaust? So Rabbi Nachman is saying, you know what? That's the way life has to be. And you have a God, and we'll explain this. You have a God that people don't understand. People have questions on. They get upset at God. So that should be no different for the tzaddik. The tzaddik should not fare any differently than God because the tzaddik is so much like God and resembles Hashem in all the ways that Hashem exists. And certainly, the real truth is Hashem is so kind to each and every one of us without fail. And yet we all turn around and criticize Hashem. So the tzaddik is no different than Hashem in every single way. The tzaddik is always trying to help Jewish people. That's his whole life. Goal is to help Jews. And Jews will not understand him. Right? And that's what we say. God's ways are truly hidden. Right? So, you know, like for example... Um, if you see, you analyze the behavior of a child, a four-year-old, everything they do, we understand. You know, analyze, you know, my four-year-old grandchild, grand house, I, I can predict what they're going to do and understand everything he's doing. You know, he, he's hungry, he's going to go and on a good day he'll ask and on not such a good day he won't ask. You know, uh, he's, he's taking some blocks and playing with blocks. What does he do that's so hard to understand already? So if you look at a four-year-old, you understand everything. You have no questions. Do you have any questions? I don't understand why he did that. What do you mean? The kid starts crying. I understand. He just fell down. He's crying. Uh, somebody didn't share his recess with him. He's crying. I understand that. If, 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 if he pushes a kid, you check out. Well, the other kid took his toy away. He pushed him away. I understand that. A four-year-old, you know, we can really understand why a four-year-old does what he does, right? But, you know, but when you're talking about God, you know, that's a different story. It's a much different story. And when we talk about, you know, certain things that don't bother us, so we don't ask a lot of questions. But if, God forbid, we have tragedies, 
and they strike home in a personal way, all of a sudden the questions start flying like crazy. Why is this happening to me? Why do I deserve this? I don't understand. I'm doing everything Hashem told me. I've gone through the book front to back. I've learned all the laws. I've done everything that God wants me to do. I've changed my life totally. I've become an observant Jew. And it says in the Torah, if you listen to Hashem, good things are going to happen. And now things are ten times worse now that I've become observant than they were beforehand. And I don't understand what's going on. Right? So, is is there something wrong with that? If you have that feeling, are you bad for thinking that way? So, we will see from Rabbi Nachman, it is Bedavka, the person who is the believer, who's the very one to ask the questions. Because if you believe, then you are asking questions. If you don't believe, or rather yet, if you don't believe, then you don't ask, because either you don't care, or you're apathetic. Then you don't ask questions. You know, uh, uh, an atheist doesn't ask questions, why did the Holocaust happen? He says, that's the way things are. Animal, the big, try to destroy the strong. That's all. There's no questions to ask. It's part of world history. The Nazis were looking for power and this and that. And they hated anyone who felt it was a threat to them. And they felt that the Jews and the gypsies and this and that were threats to them. So they killed them all out. All is fair in love and war. Finish. And they go to bed at night without any problems. They were wicked people. Yes, they were wicked people. But there's a rhyme and reason for everything. It all makes a lot of sense to an atheist. Everything makes a lot of sense. You know why volcanoes happen? You know, why did, why did tsunami come and knock out 250,000 people in Indonesia? That's nature. That's all. No more questions. And life goes on and there aren't any questions to ask. You know, take Job and his friends. Job was very critical of God. And Job's friends said, you know, you're wrong. You shouldn't speak so critically about God. But what did God tell the friends? God said that the friends, they were wrong. Because a person who trusts in God still has questions. And when you see things don't mesh and you believe in God, you have to ask questions. It's only natural to ask questions. And we ask questions because we are human who believe in God. And therefore we say in our minds, things don't add up. If you don't believe in God, nothing has to add up and you can go to bed at night very easily. But if you believe in a God, you understand there's reward and punishment and this and that. And there's a God who's supervising the world every second of the day. And you things that seem to go unsupervised. Then you know what? You're within your um, human uh, boundaries to be able to have such questions. And the truth of the matter is the primary way that we serve Hashem depends on our ability to nullify our own opinions and understandings of various matters and our ability to turn away from all those questions and to continue to serve God in spite of the questions. That is the true measure of a Jew. says, God, I have a lot of questions. I don't understand what you're doing. To me, it doesn't seem it's right. But you know what? I'm coming to shul tomorrow. I'm still going to daven. I'm still going to put tefillin on. I'm still going to give tzedakah, just like you told me. Even though I read it said, if you give tzedakah, you're going to get rich. And since I've been giving tzedakah, I haven't got any richer. Still the same, but not any richer. And, and, and the rabbis tell you, you're going to get richer. The rabbis only telling you of us what you believe in. I haven't got richer. Matter of fact, I've lost a little bit. I'm still going to give my 
right? And that's the great service that we do to Hashem. We put it, we have the questions. We're not going to say there's no questions. You put aside your questions and you keep serving God. So says Rabbi Nachman, the same thing, the tzaddik, the righteous one, who resembles Hashem, we have to trust the righteous person's opinions. We have to trust his words. We cannot question his ways. Now this can be a very dangerous game. You're not dealing with real tzaddikim, as the people in the Vatican can attest to. You know, they, they wanted to take those same liberties and really do atrocious things with people. And they're supposed to be unquestioned. There's a big difference between Rabbi Nachman and the Pope. A big difference between uh, Rav Yashuv and the Pope. We can't even put them on the same plane. Because one has a godly soul and one has an animalistic soul who's just fighting it all day long. The Pope does not have a godly soul unless he would be a Jew who went off the path. So you just can't compare the two. Right? And, but a tzaddik, just like God does things we don't understand, a tzaddik does things that we don't understand. And now Rabbi Nachman explains a little more. Let's read on. He says, Just like people ask questions concerning the behavior of God, similarly it must be that people have questions concerning the behavior of the righteous because he resembles God. It has to be that way. So, if you're a a beleaguered rabbi, you should feel honored that you're in good company. Because you and God can commiserate and have a drink together. And and share your, you know, nobody, you know, it's it's the, what is it, the Rodney Dangerfield syndrome. Nobody gives me respect anymore. Right? Because, you know, they don't don't respect God. They they respect Him, but they question Him. They don't understand. They don't understand. But He goes, He says more. He says, regarding the questions concerning the behavior of God, on the contrary, it is proper that there should be questions against God. And it is fitting and good for God, according to his greatness and exalted status. Because of his essential greatness and exalted status, which is beyond our comprehension. Therefore, it is certainly impossible for our intellect to understand and apprehend his conduct. Therefore, it must be that we have questions against God. For that is good and proper, that God should be beyond our understanding, therefore resulting in many questions. Do you hear what's going on over that? Can you imagine if, uh, if, uh, if God, let's say, if you look at everything that happens in the world, and you say, you know what, that makes a lot of sense to me. God? Right on. You did a good job. You have my approval. That's good what happened over there. You know, it's good what happened over there. And that was good and that's good. And says the, says Rabbi Nachman, if that would be the case, it would mean, God forbid, that Hashem's understanding would be just like ours. <laughs> and that would be terrible. Because what Rabbi Nachman is saying, it's totally illogical to presume that we can understand Hashem and what He does. And that's as illog- and that illogical thinking really is the same mistake of idolatry. He doesn't say it here, but that's what it is. That's where idolatry comes from. The, uh, the Ishbitzer Rebbe, one of the Ishbitzer Rebbe's, Rebbe Mordechai Yosef, he says that idolatry stems from man's desire 
to make God understood by humans. Man has a desire to want to understand God. Now it can go one of two ways. Because I want to understand God, but I can't. <laughs> That's what Renachman is telling us. I, I want to. I, I want to know why God's doing it, but I can't. Others say, no, I really want to know everything that my God does. Well, how are you going to do that? Very simple. I'll make that God conform to what I want him to do. Now, let's go back to one of the most famous types of idol worship, and that was in Egypt. Egypt, one of the earliest forms of idol worship, what did they worship? What was the deity that they worshipped? It was the sheep. The sheep. That was interesting. Isn't that an interesting idol to serve? Why would you serve a sheep? Well, what do we know about the nature of sheep? The nature of sheep is it follows the leader. One shepherd can take them wherever he wants to. He can take them right over a cliff and they'll all die. They're very trusting. They don't have their own opinion. They just do what they're told. So the Egyptians wanted an idol that was just like sheep because they wanted a religion that would, they wanted a God who would follow their will. That was what, that, that's real idol worship. They didn't want a God who told them what to do. They wanted a God who would do what they wanted to do. They wanted God to take orders from man and not that man should take orders from God. So the most convenient God to worship would be the sheep because that's what the sheep does. He listens to what I want done. And that's really where all the, uh, what do you call it, those uh, mythical, um, the Greek, what do you call it, the Greek mythology, it all comes from that. I mean, we know there was no such thing as Zeus, right? Let's be honest, there was no such thing as Zeus. But it's, it's a human being's concept of what a God would be like if a God would be as human as us. And therefore, they had these gods who were just like them. God was in their image, right? And that was a God who would listen to them. You know, so this happens, you know, in many ways. You know, you could have, and that's, you know, the problems with the different movements in Judaism, where, you know, when they say, you know what, it's about time we, we stop with the separate seating business. God is a compassionate God, and I know that God would want the women to be very involved. And God wants the women sitting with the men, so therefore the board is now passed, and we've hired a rabbi who will agree with us that we're going to get rid of the mechitza. Because why? Because God is a compassionate God. And in the 21st century, in the 20th century, where we know there's human equality and rights, there's no reason why women shouldn't be in the shul with everybody else. So now, God, since God is a sheep, he does whatever we tell him to do. Because this is what makes sense to us. As Maimonides put it so succinctly, Maimonides said, if I understood God, I would be God. But since I'm not, then I don't. Okay? It's very interesting. You can have a person say the following... You know, if I were God, I would have done things differently. You ever hear that kind of line? If I were God, I would have done things differently. You know what the answer is? You know, tell them, if you were God, you'd do it in the same way and no one would understand why you did it either. <laughs> That's what would be. Because if you were God, you'd know a lot more than what you know. And you would be doing things just the way God did them. And everybody would ask you why you did it. And you say, well, I can't explain it to you. It's too complicated for you to understand. Right? That is the critical point over here. And that's far. So since Hashem, you see, since Hashem is hidden, and it's impossible to understand His ways, we don't understand His presence in our lives in a real tangible way. And we have a different way of looking at things. So, you know, and we have trouble understanding this, a transcendental being who runs things in a way, in a way that doesn't fit into the way we understand this. 
So similarly, we look at a tzaddik. We look at it the same way. You know, but, but, but it's only logical to not understand Hashem. Because Hashem knows so much more than we will ever know. We only know from whatever limited mental understanding we have in the framework of our puny 70 to 80 years of life. All the life experience I have and all the understanding I have, and you could be a genius like Einstein, it's still limited to what you know. And before Hashem makes any decisions, He knows everything before He starts. He knows before the world was created, before you came, after you leave, down the line, when Meshizam, He knows the entire script that has to happen. He knows what everybody's done in the privacy of their own homes. He knows what next generation is going to come, what old generation came. He has it all. He has all the cliff notes. And there's no way you're ever going to know that. That's all. It's not possible for you to know that. And therefore, you're going to see things that you just say, it doesn't make sense to me. And that's okay. That's okay. So, you know, from what I learned, I don't understand why Hashem did what He did. And I, and I question from my understanding. I don't understand why He did that. That's, Rabbi Nachman says, that's fine. And that's the way it should be. It shouldn't be. You know, Hashem knew exactly what He was doing. And, and, and I think he's right. You know, you, you, now that, you can't say that because then you're saying that God isn't very powerful at all. He's pretty stupid. He's about as stupid as you are. He's as limited as you are. Kind of like, you know, just like you think, you think a rabbi gets up and gives a whole talk based on something. He says, yeah, I like what the rabbi said to me. You think he needs you to like what he said? You think he cares? If he, well, what did you, well, that's my gut reaction. So what did you, what did you base it on? Well, I feel this way. The rabbi says things he's bringing, he has thousands of sources, he has all the Torah he learned before he opens his mouth. And you just happen to agree with him. So good for you. And what about next week when you don't agree with him? That's the difference. Or they do things. So, you know, it works the same way. You know, you look at a, a great tzaddik, he looks like he's just like me. He walks, he talks, he eats, he sleeps. You know, maybe he learns a little more Torah than me. He's the same as I am. And it's, it's not so. It's not so. And that's what Job says in source number eight. Job says, these are, these are the edges of his ways. What does it mean, these are the edges of his ways? So let's say, for example, you'll read a biography of the Chafetz Chaim. It's Job is Eof. Eof. Right? Now, you can get from our scroll a two-volume, about a thousand pages about the Chafetz Chaim. A lot of stories, a lot of anecdotes. You really will know a lot about the life of the Chafetz Chaim. Uh, but you cannot say the following when you finish the book. You cannot say, now I know the Chafetz Chaim. All we could say is you know the edges of his path. You know the most external part of the Chafetz Chaim, the part that was revealed. But anything else, you don't know it. Many times people visit a tzaddik and you know, they don't, they don't, they're not impressed by what they're seeing. They don't understand what's going on over there. But you have to know a tzaddik is like God. First of all, God hides his kindness. Right? He hides it. All the time. As I said, if he didn't, he would put a, when you were born, right on your head, made in heaven. Made in heaven. So be six billion people. With a little, just like you got an indentation for your nose and your ears and your eyes. Big indentation right here. Min Shamayim. Or Yud Hey Vav Hey. Right on your forehead. God could have made us all that way. He did everything else. He could have, gives you birthmarks. A bunch of birthmarks. Yud, hey, vav, hey, made in Shemaim. 
Why didn't he do it? Because that's, he doesn't want to do it that way. His kindness is a way that's a hidden kindness. So do you think when a tzaddik's kind, he needs the whole world to know about his kindness? You know, I have countless stories, have countless stories, you know, that they tell, there's a, there was a story where, uh, they were having a board meeting. It's a true story. Not here, not here. Another city. Having a board meeting. One of the board members gets up and says, I'd like to make a, uh, something for the record, please. And, uh, they say, you know, I, I called the rabbi last week and I left him a message. And the, and the rabbi says, thank you very much. I'll give, I'll, I'll give him the message. He's a little busy now, but he'll give him the message. And I called him three times over two days and the rabbi did not respond to my call and I'm a board member. I wanted to go on record that the rabbi has been derelict in his duty and so it should be noted. And of course, when you do that, everyone on the board says, yeah, 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 what kind of rabbi is that? He has this, you know, why doesn't he call back? You're a board member, this and that. And then the president, and then the president of the board so, you know, I don't think we have to take it to that extreme. We don't have to, we, we, we know what you said, and, you know, I'll, I'll talk to Rabbi. Let, we don't need to make a vote and a motion and a this and a that. Okay, now we go to the story behind the story. How come the president was so accommodating? Because the answer is, because what was the rabbi doing for the last two days? Because the rabbi was calling in the middle of the night, and the president's son was caught on drugs, drinking, crashed the car and almost killed somebody. And the kid's in jail. And the rabbi's trying to get the kid out of jail. And if you've ever done that, you know you don't have any spare time. And for 48 hours, the rabbi isn't at home. He isn't sleeping. He's drinking. He's doing one thing, trying to get his kid out of jail. He hasn't got time to answer a silly board member's question. Now, can the rabbi, according to Jewish law, say, I am sorry, I can't call you back. Because the president's son was drunk on drugs, smashing somebody, he's going to be thrown in jail for life. And I have to stop him. Is the, president, is the rabbi allowed to say that according to Jewish law? It's lush and horror, big time. And therefore, what does the tzaddik, what does the tzaddik have to do? He has to do what a tzaddik has to do. Save somebody's life and be misunderstood. So therefore, the president said, we don't have to make such a big deal about it. But meanwhile, every time that rabbi walks in, that board member says, you know, you dissed me, man. I have no respect for you. And you think these are crazy stories? These are not crazy stories. They happen to me all the time. When people, people merely send an email that I never get because we know emails get lost. But everyone is so sure the rabbi gets every email. And if I don't respond, then they leave the shul because the rabbi doesn't answer my email. This happens. These are real stories that happen. You know. Or, or even if I get any, sometimes, you know what? Believe it or not, I could even be busy with something. Do you think these things happen to me too? And you try to get back to people, but sometimes you just can't. And, and if you have to explain why you did, you know, listen, the rabbi knows more filth than the whole community put together. Because he knows everybody's problems. Right? And he's trying to handle multiple problems at the same time. And how come you're not being, you with your little insignia, it's, it's always important, but it's compared, you know, it's like emerge, like triage. You gotta take what first comes that's more important. If somebody's dying, the rabbi's gonna be there. You wanna know the answer to your halakha question? You know, there's something in front. And people don't wanna know. You know, we had a story once, we had a story once where many, many years ago, many, many years ago, somebody who was a convert, had parent passed away. Parent passed away. Now, if you're if if you're a convert and the non-Jewish parent passed away, there's no obligation to sit shiva. Now, not every convert wants people to know that they're a convert. 
you know, because they feel maybe people will look at them a little differently. So this particular convert's uh, uh, mother passed away, and I was informed. And I said, so do you want to sit shiva? Do you want people to know about it? You, you know? And he says, no, I don't want anyone to know that I even have a, a mother. I don't want anyone to know. I'll, 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 I'll do what I do myself. Please don't make any announcements. Okay, is that like clear? So then what happens? Someone who's not a member of our shul, who's not a member of our shul, calls someone who is a member of our shul, who happened to know this convert, and happened to know that the convert's mother passed away, and said, what kind of a terrible shul do you have where this member, parent died, and they don't send any announcements, don't do anything for their shiva, what kind of shul is it? And the person who did this is, is, people would look at them as a normal person. Okay? Now, so obviously, you know, the buck stops here. It's the rabbi's fault. The rabbi is insensitive and doesn't care what other people's feelings are. Now, what are we supposed to answer to that person? So under that circumstance, we were able to say, but the, but the problem is that non-member already told one member of course, that hits the fan, and the whole shul knows how insensitive the rabbi is. Now, now, what is the rabbi not allowed to do? The rabbi is not allowed to make a public announcement in shul and say, I'd like you to know, in case you're wondering, Mrs. So-and-so personally told us not to do this, because she doesn't want anybody to know. Because we then more people would know. So then what you can do is you only can speak to that one person who's, who knows about it and says, the truth is the person didn't want it to be known. Be a good idea. Now call all the other people you've been saying Lashur to and tell them that too, will you, huh? Maybe? I'm just giving examples. And Rabbi goes through this dozens of times a week. And that's why all people hate rabbis. Because they, because the rabbis are so cruel and insensitive, they don't understand what's going on. And I'm, I'm not telling you this because I need, I need a therapy. Because I don't have any problems. It's the other people who got the serious problems. And that's why you see rabbis getting fired left and right. If a board has control, they get rid of the rabbi to, to just amplify their stupidity. A smart place will never let a board have any control because the first thing you know about board members is they don't know anything. And they can't know anything because the rabbi can't tell them according to halacha. Do you understand? Just because you're a board member doesn't mean you're allowed to hear Lush and Hara now. You can't. That's the first thing you have to realize. Right? So, so therefore, the tzaddik will be misunderstood. The tzaddik will be misunderstood. Doesn't mean to say, maybe the tzaddik will even, even really make a mistake once. Doesn't matter. You, you just, it's, that's the way the tzaddik is. I'm not saying that I'm a tzaddik like Rosh Rabbeinu at all. I'm just telling you how, how this plays out, even with puny little rabbis. You know that this one hates this one, and this one hates this one. This brother doesn't talk with this sister, and this one is one. And therefore, why did you invite this person to your meal, Rabbi? Why didn't you invite the other person? Because I know the other ones hate their guts, and I can't do that because there's going to be a whole world war. And there's all these things that I have to definitely, because I know more information, the real information, than anybody else knows. And I have to handle myself in a way that's proper to each and every one, and nobody understands why I'm doing these things. Do you understand what I'm saying? So then, so, so, so you could say, listen, I don't understand why the rabbi did what he did, but I'm still going to be a loyal congregant. So now, you know, we're, we're very sophisticated balabat and we say, I understand what he says, I'll go to another rabbi that I do understand. Believe me, if you have a rabbi, you understand, you're worse off than a person who understands what God's doing. Okay? Doesn't mean to say a rabbi doesn't make a mistake. 
And believe me, when a rabbi makes a mistake, he's the first one to apologize. I can tell you, the years I've been here, I've apologized more times than people who have never apologized once who should have apologized more times than I have. Somehow, when a balabai does something wrong, they never have to apologize to a rabbi. That's an unwritten rule. You know, when, when, when the rabbi says, you know, didn't you realize I was helping them? Oh, I didn't know. They don't say, oh, I'm sorry for misjudging you. I'm sorry for that. They never have to say they're sorry. You know why? Because they think they pay your salary, so they never have to say they're sorry. But if we pay your salary, you better say you're sorry as much time as you have to. That's, that's a funny double standard that people have. I'm just telling you realities. Present company excluded. You're all wonderful people. Because the people who talk that way don't even want to learn from me any Torah because they feel I'm not worthy to teach them Torah. Because that's the next thing a smart balabas does. When he already has decided that you're not capable, so he walks out in your drush because you have no Torah to teach him. That's how it just happens. And if you have a powerful board, just get rid of the rabbi. And now we can manipulate the next bozo who comes in. And that's where you're wondering why the Jewish people have so many problems. Because there's no respect for rabbis. Because they do things that people don't understand. And Rabbi Nachman says, that's fine. You don't have to understand. You can even question. But the next thing you have to do is you still obey. You have to say, I know one thing. The rabbi is a mensch. He's a God-fearing person. And you know what? He must have reasons for what he's doing, even though I don't understand what the reasons are. And I will, and I will just hope, you know, I'll just go on and, and still give my confidence by him. And that, and that's it. it. Doesn't mean to say the rabbi won't make a mistake, but you be sure when he does, he's the first one to admit it. He's the first one to admit it. Then we move on, right? But a lot of things he just cannot. He just, and it's not his job, you know. Now, Lahavla, a politician, is the exact opposite. Whatever little good the politician may do, he amplifies it a million times more. Seven should know every single thing he's doing. That's amazing. And he covers up everything that is wrong. The tzaddik, he covers up all... I think the rabbi announces, I just want you to know, a congregant called me. I'll put in the bulletin every week. I won't mention names. I'll say, I just want you to know that for five hours in the middle of the night, I was holding a congregant's hand, guiding through a crisis, just to know that I'm doing my job. You know, that's not, what my, that's not, that's not about that. You don't, you don't serve God to let everybody know what you're doing. I wonder what the rabbi does all day long. You know, I forgot which rebbe... The story was with. It was one of the Rebbes, the name Mrs., right? It was, uh, he did, uh, it was a story, I think one of the secular writers, right? If not higher, right? It was Slichas right before Shoshana, and the Rebbe always is, is, is not there for Slichas. The very important prayers is not there, and they're discussing, I wonder what the Rebbe is doing. I wonder what the Rebbe is doing. Ooh, he must be up in the heavens, you know. He's up in the heavens. He's praying so high, he doesn't even come down. Right. So one person says, I'm going to check out what the rabbi's doing. So one person decides to stake out the rabbi's house. And the rabbi wakes up at 4 o'clock in the morning. And he goes out in the freezing cold. He goes out into the forest. And the guy's tailing him. The rabbi doesn't know it. And what's the rabbi doing? He's chopping down wood. And then an hour later, he's going over to a blind man's house. And says, and, and, and he disguises his voice. Nothing right. uh, I'm Chaim Yankel. Do you need any wood? Yeah, please give me wood. He's going from house to house giving everybody wood. And that's why he was late for services every day. So when they came back and that person saw it, he didn't want to blow the rabbi's cover. And they say, yeah, the, God, the rabbi must be in very high places. He says, if not higher. You know, Tzadikim don't publicize their greatness. They don't know anything. But they have to do things that people don't understand. Because there's so much that they know that you don't know. There's so many things going on that you do not know that that's what they have to do. 
And that's why great people are always questioned. Now, what we do need, though, is maybe to see a little window. So let's tell a story with the, Lubav- with the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, Reb Shneir Zalman of Liadi. Before the, uh, uh, Reb Shneir Zalman was, was revealed as the great first Rebbe of Lubavitch, he was a struggling Malamed, a struggling teacher. You know, tutoring one-on-one, a tall, skinny guy, right? So that's how he made his living in the beginning. Now, the Rebbitson was more of the businesswoman there. So she knew if, if he had a student that was a little more wealthy and he wanted, she wanted to make sure to keep the customer happy, as it were, so occasionally they'd invite the wealthier students over for a Shabbos meal so they could be with the Rebbe to make it, you know, to make sure that the, they continue their business. So anyway, so the Rebbe, uh, so one particular Shabbos where there was a student was there, a young student, and uh, the Rebbe came back from shul and had a private office. And every Friday night when he came back from shul, he would go into that room for about 15, 20 minutes before he'd make Kiddush. So the Revitzen says, you want to see something special? Now climb up, and there's, on the top there's a little window, smaller window, peek in from the outside and see what he's doing. So what is the Rebbe doing? He's saying Shir Hashirim. He's saying Song of Songs. And he's saying with a lot of intensity. And then he comes to the words, Meshach, he's saying, draw to me and I will run after you. So at that point, the Rebbe jumps into ecstasy. He screams to Hashem, take me away, take me away. I mean, he's really living the words that he's saying with a tremendous energy. And the child's looking down and he's shocked. All along, he thought it was a mere little olive-based Rebbe. He's saying, whoa, he has a fire, a heart that's burning for God. Okay, and then as Shabbos is closing, the Rebbe went back into that little room. And the Rebbe said, go, go, take a look at that little window again. And take a look and see what's going on over there. Now the Rebbe is on the fifth chapter of Shir Hashirim. And in the fifth chapter of Shir Hashirim, it talks about how, how the beloved is knocking on the door and says, will you please come out? And he said, no, I've already taken off my coat off. I've already washed my feet. How can I get dressed again? I can't do it. And then by the time you go out, there's a whole thing over there. Anyway, so when the Rebbe read that, he said, he gave his own interpretation. He's talking to Hashem alone. He's, you know, he doesn't think anybody's watching him. He says, Hashem, it's Matzi Shabbos, Shabbos over. When Shabbos came off, I took off my weekday clothes. Now that Shabbos over, how can I put my weekday clothes back on? He's, he's kind of paraphrasing Shirshim in a personalized way. I took off my clothes, I can't put it back. I can't, I can't put my weekday clothes back on. Now I feel so Shabbos thick. When Shabbos came, I washed my feet. The Hebrew word for feet is raglai. Raglai, ragel, is the same as ragil, which means habit. I washed my feet. I washed my habits. I washed that robotic Judaism away. I'm not the same robotic Jew anymore. Now you want me to go put them back on? And he's almost crying that the Shabbos is going away. At this point, the child realizes this rabbi is not an average rabbi. He's an unbelievable rabbi. Now, what's the point of the story? is that the child was afforded the opportunity to have the privilege to look through that tiny window to, to see who the person really is. Because all he saw before him were the edges of the tzaddik. But sometimes you can really see what a tzaddik's all about. So what's the end of the story? Well, when the boy grew up, he became a man. He was a genius, but never became a Talmudic scholar. Well, a very bright man. He was an Orthodox Jew. Became a businessman. And he was a regular guy. He did regular Yiddish guy. But when Shabbos would come, every Shabbos, something would happen to him. He'd become totally transformed. 
He was on fire the whole Shabbos. And people asked him, I don't understand, Chaim Yankel. You're a regular guy, six days, what's going on on Shabbos? He says, he tells them the story. It's the only way we knew the story. He told the story with the Balatanya. He said, what I saw in that window, it's such an impression on me for the rest of my life. On the outside, the Balatanya looks to be a very tall, thin person. In those two minutes, he saw the greatness of that sonic that he would never look at that sonic the same way. Right? You know, you go to a, a, a Rebbe and you see him eating. Right? There's one other, another famous story, right? Rebbe, Rebbe's at the table, he's eating. He's eating, he's eating. And the Chas is looking at him. And the Chas is beginning to start thinking, you know, the Rebbe eats and I eat. The Rebbe doesn't look any different than me. I mean, the, the, the Chas was looking to see fire coming out of the Rebbe's mouth or something like incredible. Just, you know, chewing it and eating it and this and that. And the Rebbe notices that the student's beginning to get a little bit um, uh, disillusioned. Rebbe's picking it up. So Rebbe, Rebbe turns to him and says, um, you know, you're watching me at this apple, you know. I bet you're wondering what's going to be me and you, huh? And the Chas said, oh, you know, it kind of, kind of was crossing my mind. So I'll tell you the difference. When you walk down the street and you see an apple on the tree, how does your mind work? You say, I'm hungry. I want to eat the apple. You take the apple. You're about to eat the apple. It says, oh, no, one second. I can't eat the apple. I first have to thank God. Mm-hmm. And now I eat the apple. When I walk down the street and I see an apple, I say, my, oh, my. Hashem, I love you so much. Look at that beautiful apple. Look at this beautiful world you created. Hashem, I wish I could make a blessing to thank you for this beautiful world. But, but your halacha doesn't allow me to make a blessing unless I eat the apple. All right, I'll pull down the apple, make the blessing, and I'll take a bite of the apple so I can bless you. You know what that means? You make a bracha on the apple so you can eat the apple, right? I eat the apple so I can make a bracha. And it's a big difference in me and you. On the surface, it looks the same, right? But that's what Rabbi Nachman is saying. Tzaddikim are the most misunderstood people in the world. It's not anybody's fault. It's not God's fault. It's not, it's not the tzaddik's fault. That's the reality, and that's how Rabbi Nachman ends off. That's how he ends off. If his conduct would be according to our understanding, it would result, God forbid, that our understanding would be like his understanding. And therefore, we just can't understand Hashem. Question, yes. Obedience, also yes. And that's the way Jew acts. So now, let's bring this back to the Parsha now. The Zohar makes a distinction between Moshe and Aaron. In the Zohar, the Zohar calls Moshe the best man at the wedding. The one who accompanies the groom. As Hashem, when Hashem would go down to give the Torah, Moshe, as it were, would accompany God. God was the groom, Moshe is the groom's best man, and he would, he would show the world about God. That's what the best, that's what the best man's job is, how good the groom is. On the other hand, Aaron was known as the bridesmaid. Because he accompanied the Jewish people under the chuppah as you don't accompany a kala under the chuppah. Moshe's role was to bring God's presence into the world. And how did he do that? By teaching us what God wants and teaching us God's Torah. And he was always around the groom. He sang how amazing Hashem is, how wonderful Hashem. That was his job. Aaron's job was the opposite. He couldn't stop talking about how good the Jewish people were, how good the bride was. He's always praising the Jewish people to Hashem. He was what we call an Ohev Shalom Arodesh. He ran after peace. He sought peace. He loved peace. He chased after peace, trying to bring people closer to the Torah. Different jobs. 
In other words, Moses' job was to bring God closer to us, and Aaron's job was to bring the people closer to Hashem. That's why the mystics say that Moshe was called a higher-level tzaddik, and Aaron was called a lower-level tzaddik. They say Moshe was dealing with the higher-level reality of Hashem, and Aaron was dealing with the lower level of the Jews and trying to bring them close. So now if you want to know what's going on in this Parsha, so let's take a look. We're going to understand why. We begin to understand why there's all kinds of questions over here. So let's... Uh, Let's look at source number nine. The Yalkut Shimoni says, when the Jewish people cross the Sea of Reeds, and they saw everything that happens, it says, and they believed in Hashem and in Moshe, his servant. So now the Medrash asks the obvious question. If they believed in Moshe, certainly they would believe in Hashem. What's the verse coming to teach us? In other words, you know, you know, if, if, if you believe Hashem, then what do you need to believe Moshe for? It's good enough you believe God, right? So Medrash says an interesting answer. What does the verse come to teach us? Whoever believes in the shepherd of Israel is as if he believes in the creator of the world. You believe in God? You know, it's a really easy way to know. Do you believe in his shepherd? If you believe in Moshe, then I know you believe in God. It's not just I believe. It can't be I believe in God and I don't believe in Moshe. Cannot be. And the reverse. There were times when Jews criticized Moshe and they didn't believe Moshe. The Torah said they didn't believe Moshe and they didn't believe Hashem. What do you mean? So it goes on. Whoever speaks against the shepherd of Israel is as if he has spoken against the creator of the world. Why? Because it works on the same theory. You can't split it up. If you believe in God, that means you believe that God does things you don't understand and you still follow him. And if you know that a tzaddik is God's man, you have to treat him the exact same way. So although some people really don't believe in God, but instead of criticizing God, which doesn't look uh, uh, politically correct, why do you criticize the tzaddik instead? But that's the giveaway if you're criticizing the tzaddik, that really means you don't believe in God either. If you believe in the tzaddik, you believe in God. Because there's no difference. Why don't you believe in the tzaddik? Because I don't understand what he does. That's fine. Why do you believe in God? You don't understand what he does either. You, that is exactly... The tzaddik emulates God exactly. The tzaddik is by definition going to do things you don't understand because he has an infinitely greater awareness of reality than you do. And for you to think that you understand things like the tzaddik, it's only a question in degree. You understand everything, you know, on a, on a relative scale. A normal person can understand a maximum of a hundred, zero to a hundred. The tzaddik's in the thousands. God's in the billions. Well, once you're past the zone where you can't understand, you just can't understand. So it doesn't matter if it's billions or trillions or thousands. If your level is only a hundred, but beyond that level of understanding, you've got to put trust. If you can't trust what the tzaddik's doing, why are you going to trust what God's doing? Because you're already bringing it to a measurement of, I don't understand it, I don't accept it. That attitude is very unhealthy. And if you don't believe in the tzaddik, you cannot believe in Hashem. By definition. Why don't you believe in the tzaddik? I don't understand what he's doing. So you're not going to believe in Hashem either. You don't just, it's not about that switch it. Well, a tzaddik I don't believe, even though I don't understand, but Hashem I do. Why? Tzaddik, don't you understand that Tzaddik knows more than you too? Yeah, but I don't. But but he's human. Well, well, then God's going to be human too in your eyes. What? But he has. He's he's he's, shortcomings. No, no, he is he is a godly person who has developed the godly nature. We're not talking about the drunk bum on the street. I'm with the average. We're talking about a person who has dedicated his life to be inculcated with all the godly virtues that exist, and he emulates his creator. That means his knowledge of reality is way higher than the average person. 
not as high as God's, but way beyond what you know. And his, and he doesn't show off. He doesn't try to prove himself. God does things, he does everything the way God does. He chops wood at four o'clock in the morning when nobody's looking. He's, he's helping the president's son get out of jail and not telling him it. But he's not answering your calls. Because if he would answer your call, that would be wickedness. To let the kid up in the jail alone. But you don't know that. But he can't tell you. Right? That's the point. That's, so if you don't believe in God's shepherd, you cannot believe in him. And that's why whenever they complained against Moshe, Hashem understood they're going to complain against me. And that's what you're going to find in the book of Amidbor. They're either they're complaining. It's either against Moshe, Aaron, or God. And they're all in the same fell swoop. If you believe, you believe. You can't split up and say, I believe in God, I don't believe in the tzaddik. That's not possible. You don't believe in God or you, you just don't. And you're certainly not going to say, I believe in the tzaddik and don't believe in God. And there's those who do that too. Right? It cannot be. Right? Again. So again, you can ask questions. This was a generation where every question was asked. These people were called the Dordea, the generation of knowledge. Why? Because you have to have knowledge to realize you have questions. They asked a lot of questions. But by and large, by and large, the vast majority who asked the questions, they did put on the phone the next day. They did listen that they asked questions. They had problems. Okay. I don't understand. Miriam, Miriam loved Moshe, but she had questions. I don't understand him. I'm very critical of him. It doesn't make any sense. Okay. We're going to listen to him tomorrow when he gives an order. Yep. When he says time to move the gap. Yep. We're going to go. That's fine. Karach took it too far. We'll see in four weeks. Karach says, you know, Moshe's not believe. We don't have to trust him. We don't have to listen to him anymore. Uh-oh. He went over the edge. God swallowed him up. He's gone. Right? And then we have to realize, when you're raising children, we shouldn't make the children... We shouldn't have schools where children are afraid to ask the unpolitically correct questions. We shouldn't have a school that's very, very orthodox that is not open enough to let a child say, I don't understand why Shem wants us to do that. You know what? The kid can ask it. The kid can say, you know, I really don't understand. I really don't, I don't feel that there's a God in this world. I, I don't understand it. I don't understand these things. And I'm, but, but what happens is children are soon taught, don't ask questions. Because the first time they ask a question, they say, are you a shaykh or something ask such a question? Your grandparents never ask questions. Are you not a believer? The kids, okay, I understand. They put a black mark on my name. Okay, I'm never going to get a shidduch anymore. I'm going to open my mouth. I'll, yes, sir. Whatever you say, sir. I'm not going to ask any questions. There's nothing wrong. A child can be upset and say, I don't understand why, why there is such a mitzvah in the Torah. If a young girl's growing up and she's finding out she's going to have to cover her hair, she says, this mitzvah doesn't make any sense. I don't appreciate it. It doesn't make, I don't, I don't want to do it. Why would Hashem make me take my beautiful hair covered up with a more expensive shade that costs $4,000? They look more attractive. And you tell me that sneers? The kid can ask the question. And don't make the kid feel bad for asking the question. But then you're going to say, you give the best answer you can. But then you're going to still going to cover your hair? Yes. That's okay. But when you throttle them to ask the questions, then they're going to start saying, so what are you hiding? And if I can't ask, then I'm not interested. Once you cultivate an atmosphere where the questions aren't welcome, then apathy follows. And then they just stop believing, but they don't let their parents know until they leave the house. Because if the parents would know, the parents would be very upset with them. Right? 
There's nothing wrong with respectfully asking the questions. With reflexively saying, you know, I don't understand why you're treating my sister better than me. This and I'm feeling bad about it. You could ask that question. And the parents can say, well, you don't understand there's certain thing going on over here. You have to trust me, I know what I'm doing. And then you have to trust. Right? So again, it's a very powerful piece that Rabbi Nachman is teaching. Asking questions is not a bad thing. The only thing is, what do you do after you ask the question? And when you don't get the answer you want because you can't understand the answer, you know, go start explaining to, to 11 and 12 and 13 year olds why they can't look at certain things, why they can't, they don't understand that whole reality. You know, why you have to learn how to spell and do math. When you get older, you'll understand is the answer. And the truth is, when you get older, you do understand. Well, why are you treating Chaim uncle better? You know, when you get older, when you're a parent, and you're going to see, you're going to understand. Well, I don't understand. You're right. You just have to, you know, I love you. Don't you trust Did you trust me? Well, but that's still not fair. Okay, I understand. But Chaim can you take out the garbage, please? No, until I understand why, I'm not going to take out the garbage. Now you got a problem. And they say, listen. I'm telling you, you just have to trust me. I love you, isn't that? Now please take out the garbage. Yes, with pleasure. Then, then you can ask questions, but yes, with pleasure, you take out the garbage. That's what the, And Aaron also was not free of questions either. Now, we know all the famous stories about Aaron. Aaron would see a husband and wife are having a fight. So what does he do? He goes over to the husband and he says, you know, your wife really loves you so much. But, you know, something happens. I want to tell you about it and She's not bad, but she really loves you. If you would just go over to her, just go over to her, she'd give you the biggest hug. But before the husband goes, he runs to the wife fast and says to the wife, you know, your husband really loves you. He's crying. He's so sad. He, he needs you. He's too, too, too arrogant to say it, but he's, but he's too proud. But if you'd walk by, he would give you the biggest hug. Neither one know that he's lying to both of them. And they go run to each other. They start hugging each other. They do that with people who are in fights. He was the biggest liar in the world, Arm. But it was a lie that you're allowed to say. A lie to make peace. And the truth is, Aaron knew the inside of the soul. He knew the truth is, every Jew does love another Jew. He's just covered up with too much garbage. He really wasn't even lying. But from their perspective, they thought he was lying. But really, he wasn't lying, right? So what would people say about Aaron? He was doing this his whole life. So look at Aaron. They'd say, ah, here comes the liar. That's a clever guy. I remember three years ago, he told my wife that she loves me, and, I, and, 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 and you know, and that really wasn't true. And so they said, yeah, but isn't your marriage much better? Yeah, it is. Marriage much better, but, you know, he's a sneaky guy that are. And they start with the other guys. Yeah, yeah, he did that with us uh, two years ago. And all of a sudden, this dinner party, you know what? All 12 couples had had huge fights. They were going to get divorced. Aaron fixed up all their marriages, but they all know he kind of bends the truth a little to get the job done. Right? You know, they loved him. They loved him, but they made a big mistake. You know, they called him, you know, they probably called him Mr. Aaron instead of Rabbi Aaron. Because since he was the bridesmaid and he spent so much time, quote unquote, dirtying himself up, dealing with the lower needs of the people, they thought he was a regular guy. But Moshe Rabbeinu, Nobody thought that. It was, oh, he's the great one. He's the teacher. He's Rabbeinu. He, he has a veil between us and the, he's so holy, he blinds us. He has a veil over himself. We can't get near the guy. Truth is, they're both very misunderstood. Moshe's so misunderstood because he's so great. And Aaron's so misunderstood because he covered up so much of his greatness. 
That's how they're very understood. The Medrash says in source number 10, Aaron knew that if he would seclude himself and just deal with his own personal development, he would have been able to rise to the highest levels. Okay, I mean, he could have gone way up there. Unbelievable. However, he would have reached the ultimate destination, meaning connection to Hashem in the highest way. Maybe even greater than Moshe. However, he knew that great things would happen to Israel through him. So he tied his loins with iron cables, as it were, and went from door to door of the Jews. Anyone who did not know how to say the Shema or to pray, he would teach him how to say the Shema and to pray. Similarly, whoever did not know how to enter into Torah study, he would teach. He spent his whole life being the bridesmaid. Why? Because he knew that was his job. Moshe was the best man. We need to have a bridesmaid. That's what God wants. And the bridesmaid's job is what? To always say good things about the bride. And to always take care of the bride's littlest, most puny, mundane needs. And therefore, nobody ever realized how great Aaron was. So they misunderstood Aaron. Moshe they misunderstood because he was beyond them. And Aaron just covered himself so well. It's similar to a story with the great Rabzusha. There were two great Hasidic brothers, the Rabbi Elimelech and the Rabzusha. Now, you know, when you talk about Reb Zusha, the Hasidim talk about Reb Zusha, they don't say Reb Zusha, they say the Rebbe Reb Zusha. They always add the Rebbe Reb Zusha, because he's really a very holy man. And real tzaddikim trembled when Reb Zusha would walk into a room. But it wasn't so simple. He was an amazing man, but look what he would do. Anyway, the story goes as follows. Once there was a man, a regular guy, his father passed away. He's sitting shiva. Every night, his father came to him in a dream. The father just died holding a crucifix. Now for a Jew, that's a pretty scary dream to see your father who just died holding a crucifix. So man didn't understand what's going on. So, and his father was a righteous man. I mean, why in his dream is his father carrying a crucifix in the dream? Right? Was his, was his, his father was not a clandestine Gentile, right? So the man went to Reb Zusha with the problem. Rebbe, what's going on? So Reb Zusha says, don't worry, you know what happened? Probably when they lowered the coffin in the grave, Probably a couple branches from a tree fell down, and one branch fell like this, one branch fell like that, and then they put the sand down, and there's a crucifix-like thing on top of his grave that's a bit annoying for him. So he's coming to you as if to say, you know, go take care of it. So go tomorrow when the shiva's over, take ten men, dig up the top part of the grave, not the whole grave, till you come to the two sticks, get rid of the sticks, and you'll be fine, the dreams will go away. That's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Okay, a number of months later, this man, he goes to Vilna. Now, who's in Vilna? The Vilna Gong, the greatest, brilliant, most brilliant Jew in the world. And the guy says, where are you from? I'm from Anapoli. Oh, the Reb Zusha is there. Maybe you can tell me something interesting about the Reb Zusha. I want to hear something good about Reb Zusha. So he told him this story. Wow. So the Vilna says, I'm shocked and amazed. You know? Because now the Vilna Gong knew the entire Torah backwards and forwards, the most arcane, out of place. He says, you know, there's a Jerusalem Talmud that's so obscure that mentions this very thing, that if you see a crucifix in a dream, there's probably two six. I didn't know that the Reb Zusha was such a scholar. He learned the most obscure places of the Talmud. I'm very impressed that he's such a smart guy. So... The, 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 the man came back from Vilna to Reb Zusha and he said, so Reb Zusha said, so what did you I saw the Vilna Gon. I told the Vilna Gon the story. And he said, he was so impressed that you're such a genius. He said, well, next time you go to Vilna, please tell him, I don't know, I don't know any of this stuff. I don't know the Jerusalem Talmud. I'm not such a big scholar like they think I am. 
I didn't look at it, but you know what? I know where the Jerusalem Talmud got the idea from. In other words, you know, to to understand the greatness and wisdom of God, Reb Zushi didn't just have to learn from the Talmud. If you're close to God, God will let you know anything you need to know. And that's where Reb Zusha would cover himself up. Reb Zusha, the point of the story is, he would hide his greatness. And that's what Aaron did. Aaron would hide his greatness. So let's think about it. Every year, every year we read Parsha's Kisisa. Kisisa. And what happens? And every year we ask the same question. How could Aaron help people make the golden calf? There's all kinds of answers, all kinds of discussions. But he ultimately helped them make the golden calf. Right? And after we get all the answers, then they were still not satisfied with it. Right? Ah, he's trying to delay them, trying this. Yeah, he should have said no. Yep. So Aaron made the golden calf. Get to know something. The same Aaron who made the golden calf is the same Jew who lit the menorah beautifully. That's what we started our Parsha with. How can we understand this? How can we understand this? He's the guy lighting the, lighting the, he was the guy who made the golden calf. And that's what the Jews were probably wondering too. Jews were wondering. And that's what Rashi is saying. That you know what? Even though Aaron, it looks like he made the golden calf and it looked like he did a terrible thing. And it looks like the Tzaddik did a terrible Avera. And now you want to say that he's going to light the menorah and, and do these beautiful things? What's going on over him? Aaron's not such a great guy. I don't see him learning Torah all day long. He just gets involved in people's family problems. He just teaches olive base to people. He's not such a great guy. That's what Rashi says. You know what? Aaron did exactly what he's told. And Rashi says he never changed. People think, oh, I guess Aaron's a different guy now. From his terrible ways of making the golden calf. From his not-so-scholarly teaching olive base. Yes, he's, he's improved. He's a better guy now. He's grown spiritually. He must be a changed man. Rashi is saying, no, 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 no. He never changed. Aaron always did the same thing all the time. And what's that? Be a good bridesmaid for God. And being a good bridesmaid for God sometimes means you've got to do some nasty things. Some real nasty things. But he never changed. And the lofty things, the not lofty things, he's the same guy. You know, they say like this, I heard it, one of the Shavarachs, a beautiful vort, incredible vort. They say, if you see a pot in your dream, it's a sign that you will have peace. Gumara says that. So Rabbi said, what does that mean? If you see a pot in your dream, you're going to have peace? So Rabbi's explained like this. What does a pot do? You put water in a pot and you boil it. Now let's think about that. Under the pot, there's a raging fire. In the pot, there's water. Without the pot, fire and water would extinguish each other. So the pot makes peace between the water and the fire. The fire can burn as much as it wants. It will boil the water. You have nice hot tea. The water will not extinguish the fire. And everybody lives peacefully. But now the best part of the void is coming up. Now, after many years of that pot, take a look at the bottom of the pot. And how does it look? Black. To make peace, I'm going to use the Yiddish expression... You have to fashvarts yourself a bissel. You have to make yourself black a little. You're not going to be a squeaky clean pot making peace with people. To be able to get one guy, you know why? Let's say you have, you know, A is in a fight with B. You're trying to bring A and B together. Now, somehow along the line, when you're talking, when to bring you together, you got to tell A that B's a pretty good guy. Somewhere along the line, right? A does not want to hear that B's a good guy. What do you mean? You hate me too? And B's 
He's got to tell B that A is somewhere along. It's a pretty good guy, right? But B right now hates A. And you're trying to make peace. You're saying A's not such a bad guy. Really, A did a lot. I don't want to hear what he does. You're his friend. Do I hate you too? So when you try to make peace, what happens? You get black. And maybe even a black eye besides a black pot. Try to defend. I remember once I was, uh, when I was a dorm counselor in the yeshiva, and we had guys who would be the guys to help put the guys to bed, you know, make sure they went to bed, checkers, you know, the monitors. So the monitors would tell the guys, you know, we're violating the rules, whatever. And so then, so, uh, so one time, so you know, I have to keep the guys in line, so you give them fines here and there. Once in a while, you give them a fine. So I remember this big, big guy, and he was very, he broke the curfew. This, I said, okay, you have a $2 fine. You know, he was furious. He slammed the door, ran out. And then later on, he was talking to one of the monitors. And he's yelling at the monitor, you know, Raymond Collins is terrible, he's this and that. And I said, well, what do you want? He's doing his job, he's trying his best. And what did the guy do? Wham! He punched him right in the eye. The guy was trying to make peace. If you want to make peace, you're going to have a black tuchus. That's what's going to happen. You're going to get black. That's the only way you make peace. And that's what Aaron had to do. And that's how the Parsha starts. Parsha starts, wants you to know something. You think Aaron wasn't such a great guy. You think he made a mistake with the golden calf. You think all he can do is teach olive base to people. You know what? You don't know who this Aaron is. And you know what? When he's lighting the candles, and that's a very, very holy job. That's one of the holiest jobs. They've got to be a pretty big guy to do that. I don't understand how a guy teaching olive base could do such a thing. You know what? Because when he teaches the olive base, you don't know what he's covering up. Malamet Shloshina, he never changed. He always was the beautiful bridesmaid that Hashem has. And that's the theme of the entire parsha. If people would have picked up that lesson, they wouldn't have been arguing against Moshe Rabbeinu the whole time. You know, the Medrash says, you know, when Moshe would come a few minutes late to class, they'd snicker and say he was lazy. If he came a few minutes early, they'd say he's probably up to no good. You know, whatever he's doing, people are complaining. Right? So now, that's good. There's just one more thing to say. Just another two minutes, maybe. So you say, okay, so wonderful. So what did I learn from today? God does things I don't understand. Okay. And maybe leaders do things I don't understand. And of course, we'll all say, yeah, but you know, but the rabbi's not a tzaddik. And I don't really have, if I really had a big tzaddik, if the chos of Lublin was here, if the rebelli melech, Reb Zusha was here, okay. But it's just regular rabbis, they don't have to worry about it, you know. So the message is not important. But there's the one more thing you have to know. And that is source number 11. Isaiah says, and we say this every week when we do uh, Pirkei Avos, God says, and your people are all righteous. Every Jew has to be looked at as a tzaddik. Every Jew. And you know what? We've got a lot of questions on every Jew. And the truth of the matter is, even though there are many Jews do things that are really wrong, but you've got to realize there's a lot of things you don't understand about Jews either. Starting with their godly soul. For number one. And to know they're a child of God, as we talked about two weeks ago in the Parsha class. And how much Hashem loves every child. And even when the, tza, the Navi was rebuking us, he said, but they're still all righteous people. Because there's a lot of things you don't know about Jews. Even the Jews that we think are terrible Jews. You know, uh, you, know you go to a shul and everybody's talking. Oh, a bunch of wicked people, they're all talking shul. But you don't know what everyone has to go through in life. We just don't know. And we don't know if push came to shove what these Jews would be doing if they had to be doing things. 
And we're very quick to judge every Jew and say, you know what, he's not a good Jew, he's not a good Jew, he's not a good Jew. But you got to remember, every Jew is a tzaddik. There is a good part of that Jew. Now, certainly not like a tzaddik of Rabbi Elimelech and Rabbi Zusha, no, and not like Pusha Rabbeinu and not like Rabbi Nachman. But there's elements of there that do not deserve the total um, annihilation of, of the personality that we do to them. And we don't realize what challenges they go through, what, how far they've come, certain people, what they've accomplished. And there is righteousness. Inside every Jew, there is real righteousness that we cannot ignore. And maybe a smile would bring it out. It's interesting, the last source, the Yalkut Shimoni, says something incredible when the Jews were traveling in the desert. It says, the cloud of Hashem was over them by day and when they journeyed from the camp. So uh, the, the, text, the text is a little bit problematic then because uh, the Yalkut says it's not so simple because the Jews were always in the camp. So how is it said it journeyed from the camp? So he says, look what happened. It refers to the lame, blind people who had impure discharge and mitzoras. There were some Jews who were sent out of the camp because they were unholy. They didn't stay within the camp. And the camp was surrounded by the protective clouds of glory. The measure says like this, for if one Jew would draw away from the underneath of the wings of the cloud of glory, Jew, he spoke Lush and Hara. You're out of the camp. You're out of there, man. Get out. The cloud of glory would draw after him and he would return. No. The cloud of glory, imagine let's say the cloud of glory is a big rectangle. Now this guy gets kicked out over here. So the cloud would make like a finger, like uh, Kiryat uh, Shmona. You know, that, what do they call Smaller. that? Well, you Smaller. know, the, the finger that sticks out, what do they call it? There's a name for it, no? The etzba. You know, up in the north of Israel, there's a little finger that of Israel just sticks out a little bit. So the cloud of glory, you know, it's this line here, and then a little finger here to go under the Mitzorah to protect the Mitzorah. You know why? Because God's divine presence doesn't nullify any Jew. Even he's Boklash and Hara, and he's a Mitzorah. He's the worst Jew that could be. He's thrown out of the entire camp. But the cloud would still go over him. Because he's still there. And just as Hashem talks good about all Jews, we have to believe there's a hidden goodness in every single Jew. We have to believe inside of every Jew there's a hidden tzaddik. The problem is, we're not as fortunate as the student of the Balatanya, who was able to look through that little window and see what kind of person is really there. Because if we were able to look through at that little window and get a glimpse of every Jew, we'd look at that different. But the problem is, we look at this other Jew and we say, you know, he better get out of my cloud. He doesn't belong in my cloud. That's the problem. Just because we don't have the window into someone else's life doesn't give us an excuse. The good excuse, oh, I never knew that he was dying. I never knew that his father was dying. I never knew that he lost all his money and no one ever knew about that. That's why he hasn't been contributing to the shoe lately. I never knew that his uh, son, um, you know, was in a hospital and the rabbi had... I ne- if I would have known, I wouldn't have said it. You know what? That's not an excuse. Just because you don't have the little window doesn't mean you don't treat him as if you hadn't seen the little window. You have to believe that there is a little window. Certainly with Hashem, certainly with the tzaddik, and even every Jew. Now, certainly every other Jew can be doing things that are wrong, but don't throw him out of your cloud. God got a finger came over him. Now, he doesn't have to be your best buddy either, but don't throw him out of your cloud. And that's the problem that the Jews had from start to finish till the end of this book. Every minute they're asking questions. The difference is, do you still put on the phone the next day? Now, Hashem does a lot of jobs on us. 
and a lot of and Hashem's good, loyal servants have to do things we don't understand. The key to success for the Jewish people is question, yes, not understand, yes, but to be obedient, yes. And that is the successful Avodah Hashem that we need. Okay, thank you for listening.